Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, September the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Aoife Moore's new book, The Long Game Inside Sinn Féin, offers a new and timely look at Ireland's most popular party, which over the past 25 years or so has moved from the political margins to stand now, if opinion polls are to be believed, on the threshold of power in Dublin, while it's also ready to take the position of First Minister in Belfast, which it earned at the last Assembly elections. Despite Sinn Féin's prominence, some commentators continue to argue that there's still something secretive about how the party continues to be run that goes back to its historical roots in what Republicans call armed struggle. Even more met up with Pat Leahy and Harry McGee from the Irish Times political staff in the podcast tent at Minefield during the recent Electric Picnic Festival to discuss her book and the process of writing it. She originally expected Sinn Féin would cooperate with her on the project, but things didn't quite work out that way first person I told I was writing the book was Mary Lou MacDonald and the reason I told her first was because I was very aware that she hated the notion that she didn't run Sinn Féin and that she <clears throat> has often said that the notion that there's like the boys in Belfast as people call them and Jerry Adams are pulling the strings really bothers her and she finds it very sexist so I went to her it was in Leinster House it was a summer day I remember it so clearly we were standing next to her car in the car park out the front of Leinster House and I told her and she said something along the lines of your parents must be really proud of you and just as a disclaimer both my parents have met Mary Lou MacDonald because of the connection to Bloody Sunday and you know different her attending different events for Bloody Sunday so she said all your parents must be very proud of you and I said listen I'm not asking for the world but I would just like a bit of cooperation um I was like I don't work for certain newspapers. You know, I'll give you a fair roll of dice. Like, I just want to write a good book. And she said, yeah, you should be very proud of yourself, all this. And she said, can I tell Michelle and Pierce? And I said, yeah, but could you just not tell everyone until I get all my ducks in a row? And um, she said, yeah, that's absolutely no problem. And then from then on, my life and the book just became very, very difficult. Why? So initially, I just started ringing around MPs and MLAs and TDs that I wanted to speak to, and many of them said yes. Actually, in one instance, uh, an MP was like, come up to my house, I'll make you your lunch. Very nice about it. And, and were these people that you would have had I already had a relationship relationships with, with Yeah, just from work. And then within an hour, the same, the head of press, or a press officer in Sinn Féin, phoned and said... Don't phone any of our MPs. Don't phone any of our MLAs. We haven't decided if we're speaking to you yet. And I said, right, well, I already spoke to Mary Lowe. So if it goes, doesn't matter. We haven't decided yet. And what then, it just became incredibly difficult. There was never an outright no, but it was 
email after Th this email. Is, sorry, there's never an outright no from the Sinn Féin leadership. From Sinn Féin from leadership, but there was nothing from then on. So that went from emails, calls, text messages, and then eventually an email from the Sinn Féin solicitor. What did that say? The Sinn Féin solicitor said, you no longer contact the press office. If you want to talk to Sinn Féin, you contact me as their solicitor, and we would like to see the extracts of the book that have any allegations about staff and representatives of Sinn Féin. And instead of being putting off writing the book, I printed it out, and it's now on the second page in the book. <laughs> Harry, people who write these sort of books, the, the kind of insider, inside politics genre, and there's been a number of them over the years, they often encounter opposition from the subjects uh, uh, of the book. But I don't think I've ever heard of a solicitor's letter before. Uh, no, that's uh, quite unusual. Sorry, I was sinking into the culture, so I have to stand yeah, up to... Uh, to, uh, yeah, so this comes, the, the book is in kind of the tradition of, uh, it's a kind of a subgenre of political books, uh, which purports to be kind of an inside. So you're looking beneath the bonnet, you're kind of looking beneath the carapace and finding out what really happens inside. I think most people who you meet day-to-day uh, -day life will say something like, you know, Micheál Martin, what's he really like? As if Micheál Martin has some kind of a secret life. But political parties and political movements and governments... He, he may well do. Harry. He we may don't well know. Very well do. We know, for all we know. He might have four <laughs> oranges on a weekend. We don't know. Uh, oh, yeah. And he two could, cups he, of lemon tea. Two when cups feeling of very lemon bold. tea. But he could, the, the, the he could be here as we, here as we speak, <laughs> feasting on hard-boiled okay, eggs. Stop diverting me from my thesis, guys. <laughs> what's, what's a chickpea salad between friends? We have a bounden duty to bore the people here within the next hour, so let me kind of continue with that uh, pursuit. So the genre is very interesting. So you go back to, say, Bob Woodward, one of the uh, two journalists who broke the Watergate scandal, but there's quite a good tradition of it in the Irish context as well. So if you go back uh, to 1982, uh, sorry, 1984, uh, the seminal book called The Boss that was written by Peter Murta and Joe Joyce about a, a year in the Hawaii administration, and they spoke to everybody that moved and wrote one of the most searing, uh, insightful uh, portraits of Hawaii and a particular period of Irish history. Because they were writing a book, some of the politicians had a kind of slightly different attitude to, to them, and they, they had an office across the road from Leinster House, and people formed an orderly queue, almost, to come in and speak to them. They had no difficulty, get, difficulty getting people to speak to them. As Pat was saying with Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin is kind of different from other, other political parties. They tend to be hermetically sealed in terms of releasing information. If we're, for example, covering a parliamentary party meeting of any other party, we can tell you immediately what's happening. With Sinn Féin, it's different. Unruined uh, Dangan, uh, that kind of tight secret, has become a, a principle with the party that extends from the top right down to the bottom. So Aoife did extraordinarily well in getting in behind that carapace and kind of explaining how modern Sinn Féin works. Who calls the shots, the kind of the, um, the, kind of the thinking and the rationale that go behind thing, uh, the way in which it is still controlled uh, along the lines that ran the military side of, of Sinn Féin a long, long time ago. But she also shows that despite this kind of air of control and superiority, a lot of things also go wrong. Uh, there are also big personality disputes, and there have also been very, very big blunders that have been made along the line. So, 
<laughs> How like, did you do it? I think, and I think he knows this himself, and he won't mind me saying this, but I don't know if anybody heard, but Shane Ross also wrote a book um, about Mary Lou McDonald last year. And myself and Shane would have contacted a lot of the same people. And Shane, same as me, had a very, very hard time trying to write his book. And there's certain people that you know, if you know anything about Republicanism and anything you know about Sinn Féin, there's certain people that you have to talk to that you want to talk to. And I approached a lot of people and my, my book, my entire book is the people are anonymous. So it might, be say, it might say Sinn Féin staffer or special advisor, but I had to give people the anonymity because a lot of these people are still in Sinn Féin. A lot of these people are guilty of crimes that they have not been to prison for. And a lot of these people come from hardline Republican families. And even though the, the war, inverted commas, the war is over, their oath, because when you join the IRA, you take an oath, their oath still stands. For a lot of people, they don't think they the oath still stands, and, but a and, lot of people do. And that oath bind, binds Bind them you. to follow orders. The Green Book oath, I think it says, speaking outside of the movement is tantamount to suicide. I think that's the way it's worded. So I take, took a lot of care um, when I was speaking to the people and I told a lot of people, you know, no one will ever know that you spoke to me. I will never tell anyone. And I am not here to rip this party apart. I am not here to change anybody's mind. I just want to get to the inside of Sinn Féin and how they work. And the thing I had to be aware of was Sinn Féin have pissed a lot of people off, people who were Republicans, people who were their staff, people who were, you know, very much in the inner circle. And when you're interviewing those people, you need to remember that these people have an axe to grind. They have nothing good to say about Sinn Féin. So there's a lot of parsing what is genuine and what is worthy and what is a lot of someone's just boil on their arse that they wanted to get scratched. So how do you tell the difference? I think you can tell by just even the language that they use. And I would say the point I made when I wrote this book was not a lot of women write books about the Troubles. And in books about the Troubles, even less women are interviewed. So throughout the book, for every man I spoke to, I made an effort to speak to a woman as well. And if someone told me something about a person or an event or a thing that happened, and you went and checked it with another person who maybe wasn't as hurt or had as a strong feeling about that event, it was a bit easier to parse what the event actually was and how it actually shook out. Because, you know, I have had people who I interviewed for this book who have said to me, Jerry Adams is the devil incarnate. He is the worst person I've ever met. If he told me this guy was blue, I would go out and check. He is the devil. And then I have spoken to young people in Sinn Féin who say Jerry Adams is the reason I get into politics. He's been an absolutely brilliant mentor. You can't do enough for people. And that's the sort of way you have to balance it because people are different to different people. I thought on balance, though, Adams didn't come out of the book particularly well. Are you shocked? I'm not shocked, no, but I think... <laughs> I. I think what you have identified within Sinn Féin is the sort of thing that you, we would be familiar with in other 
parties, mm. which is kind of a, the idea of an internal loyal opposition in a way. Mm. You know, their loyalty to the party are the cause, not so much to necessarily the leader of the party. Yeah. And of course, that exists in a context of political competition mm. in other parties. But until now, it hadn't really been possible to identify those people or to identify that voice in Sinn Féin in the way that it has been mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in, in other parties. And I wonder if you can just think back about, uh, about the process of gathering the information and tell us a little more about it. Because I, I remember when uh, writing the, 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 the books... You're a very good a, book, a, Showtime. ...a million years ago that you so kindly referred to there and maybe found in many good second-hand bookshelves at the bottom of the <laughs> remainder's pile at this stage. But so was, I was talking principally, not exclusively, but principally to, to people in Fianna Fáil. Mm. And what I noticed that at the start, it was very difficult to get people yeah. to talk. But you reach a sort of point oh, no, in the process it's, it's where word gets people, around. People start panicking. People then, excuse me, people who, uh, who people, wouldn't talk to yeah. you a couple of weeks ago yeah. suddenly realize, oh, I've got to get my spake in. This, so this did is, you have that sort of a tipping yeah, point? This is how, short, ironically, the book's called The Long Game. I'm, now I'm going to say Sinn Féin are short-sighted. But this is how short-sighted they were at the time. So I went and visited this press officer, he's an old man now, but he was, I believe he was a press officer for the Provisional IRA and then a press officer for Sinn Féin. And I went up and met him in his house and I said, what is the crack here? I said, they're treating me like a total pariah. No one will answer their phone. I don't care if they don't want to speak to me, but can I just get an answer either way so I know I'm not wasting my time? And he said, don't bother ringing them anymore. They're not going to answer you. He said, uh, doesn't matter who you are, don't take it personally. We, they're not going to do it because they can't control the narrative. And I said, but I'm going to write the book anyway. So they're not going to be able to control the narrative anyway. And I, I can't give that money back to Penguin. So <laughs> it's like, the book's getting done. And he said, it doesn't matter. So I said, would it not be even worth their while from even a spun doctor point of view? They line up 10 people you're involved in Sinn Féin, to speak to me, you say, oh, it's the best thing I've ever done. There's a future of republicanism. Jerry Adams is an angel and Mary Louise Muller Teresa. But they just wouldn't give me anything. So the thing that bothered me the most was, and I'm sure a lot of people here know, but like I come from a very Republican estate in Derry and I had a family member murdered by the British you're Army. You're from Derry, eh? Am I from Derry? You should mention that from time I to should, time. I should. And uh, so... When I started researching the book, I phoned a family friend who was very senior in Sinn Féin and still is moderately senior in Sinn Féin. And I said to him, would you do an interview for the book? And he said, let me check my diary and I'll come back to you. And this is a man I've known since I was born. Like he was at my confirmation. Like I've known him my whole life. And... Um, he said, let me check my calendar and I go back to you. Two minutes later, a Sinn Féin press officer phoned me and said, stop phoning Sinn Féin members for interviews for your book because we haven't decided yet. And I said, well, he's not just a Sinn Féin member. 
he's my family friend. And he said, well, he's a Sinn Féin member. And I said, well, he was my family friend before he was a Sinn Féin member. And that is the hold that this party has on the people involved, that someone who has known me since I was born couldn't give me a straight answer and referred back to the party before deciding if you could speak to me. It is kind of short-sighted, that, Harry, isn't it? As Aoife says, because if Sinn Féin is to play a greater and greater part as in the politics of this country as it seems set to, it, that, that sort of approach is not really tenable, is it? Or is it? No, you can't control the narrative, especially in this day and age with social media. You know, and once you control the, the narrative, you're suppressing free speech and free opinion. And this is something that Sinn Féin and its transition from being a party that came from violent republicanism to, in, in terms of moving to full democracy uh, ha, has been grappling with but hasn't really fully succeeded in doing. I think one of the most, actually, the, the most fascinating part of the book for me is the foreword, the first couple of pages in the book. And Aoife was describing it earlier on, her efforts to get cooperation from the party at the beginning, the solicitor's letter, the shutters coming, coming down, and the non-cooperation. Uh, and um, uh, they described her as a Nahar Niva. You don't have to go to Umpobal Gwelga across the road because we have a Gwelga here who can give you an instant uh, translation. It's a poisonous snake. So she was described as a poisonous snake and became a persona non grata. And the first four pages of the book will be extraordinarily damaging to Sinn Féin because this is a party that's trying to... Uh, the, the impression that you can get at the end of it is that this is a party that's trying to suppress freedom uh, of expression. Now, I was involved in a documentary in 2020, 2019 and 2020, on Martin McGuinness for RTE. I did the research for it and I wrote it. And it was actually directed by Colin Barrades, the, um, the guy who subsequently went on to direct on Colleen Kuhn. So we had to get cooperation uh, from uh, Sinn Féin. And that process was amongst the most convoluted and most difficult experiences I've ever had as a journalist, just in terms of trying to get approval for interviews. Uh, we tried to get Jerry Adams, Jerry Adams wouldn't do it, and then in the end, after months of negotiation, we did get a couple of people, most of whom were uh, Derry-based. But it gave you a, a sense that when you're dealing with Sinn Féin, you're dealing with a party that is apart from everybody else. And that's why it was so important that this book was written, because until now, nobody has really uh, examined uh, Sinn Féin uh, to that extent. And just uh, one little point, when I was talking about the other kind of examples, I forgot to mention another amazing book called A Secret History of the IRA by Ed Maloney, which was published, I think, in 2005. And that is another extraordinary book that gives you an insight uh, into the IRA, but also into the way that Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness uh, uh, operated and took the party uh, from, uh, from a, 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 a paramilitary organisation uh, on, on the road to, to the Good Friday Agreement and peace. In fairness to Gerry Adams, just talking about Gerry Adams, I think Pat was right. I think uh, Aoife is very much on Team Martin as opposed to Team Gerry. And I think she's on Team Michelle too, rather than Team Mary Lou, uh, having read the book. Um, Martin McGuinness reminds me a little bit of, of the character uh, uh, that Brandon Behan wrote in The Hostage, The Smiling Boy, who's all hail fellow, well met, sings songs. But then when it comes to the end of the play, He's the guy who ruthlessly dispenses the shot without thinking about it. Uh, Martin uh, McGuinness had a... I completely disagree. Well, well, just let me, let me, you know, Martin McGuinness was a very senior figure in the IRA. Martin McGuinness... Are you going to mansplain oh. my own book to me? What? <laughs> uh, no, no. I'm explaining, I'm just explaining. 
I'm explaining, I'm explaining, I'm just explaining the difference between uh, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness. So w during the course of our research, it, Martin McGuinness was a complicated character. There was, there was a, a cold side to Martin McGuinness and a ruthless side to Martin McGuinness. And then when you go to Jerry Adams, there's a kind of an image of Jerry Adams. But Jerry Adams was also a complicated uh, a character as well. And for every dark side that people identify in Jerry Adams, there were other saving graces. He was a complicated figure who, uh, who, who people who admire, they admire him hugely. And he, he, his contribution to the peace process was immense. There was a kind of a dark side to him uh, that's never fully been explained. But I'm just saying that when you're looking about, when you're trying to describe uh, both characters, I think that there are, you know, good points and bad points to, to both. And um, I, I wouldn't have been quite as hard on Jerry Adams as, as, as you were during the course of the book. I just disagreed about the Brendan Beacon character, about, um, you know, a Haifa well met. The, re the way I look at Martin McGuinness is Martin McGuinness was very cold and very ruthless. And you need to remember that some of the worst atrocities carried out by the IRA were carried out in Derry. I mean, he, he, he is. He is. Let's not, sorry to interrupt, but let's not, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. He was responsible for the deaths yeah. of an awful and lot like, of innocent I opened, people. I opened the book with two murders in Derry, two of the most horrific murders in Derry, one of um, a 16-year-old boy at a Bloody Sunday march and Patsy Gillespie. If people don't know who Patsy Gillespie is, he was a Catholic father who lived in the same estate as me and the IRA kidnapped him from his house, chained him to his work van, put a bomb on it and blew him up outside a police station. It was absolutely horrific. So the notion that Martin McGuinness was this passive character in the IRA is not real. You know, Martin McGuinness, although he has told the truth about some of his IRA past, he has not told all the truth. He still, he, until his death, I think he maintained that he had left the IRA uh, many years before, and we know that he hadn't. But I do absolutely believe when it comes to outreach and when it came to the peace process, Martin McGuinness gave himself wholeheartedly, and you can see that in the reach out to unionists. You can see that in his relationship with Tempari, his father, the, the wee boy who was killed in the Warrington bomb, he made great inroads um, when it came to reconciliation, which is not something I felt like Jerry Adams ever did. And also, the thing we need to remember as well, and the thing that Jerry Adams has that Mark McGuinness doesn't have in his reputation, is the treatment of victims of sexual abuse within Sinn Féin and the Republican movement. So that's why I don't believe Jerry Adams should get his e not an easy ride. But I think there is definitely a darker shadow when it comes to Jerry Adams and its sex abuse in the Republican community. Yeah, and that's one of the st strongest, uh, there are a couple of strongest chapters in the book, the, yeah, the sorry, way in which Onya Adams and others were dealt with by Sinn Féin and the IRA. 100%, and I'd like to get into a few of the stories from the book. I mean, talking about McGuinness and, uh, and, and Adams, one of the, and I wrote a story about uh, this based on the book, in yesterday's uh, Irish Times, one of the you know one of the stories that went me go made me go holy God like there's real kind of revelations in this uh, was that one about in the wake of that the Onya Adams sex abuse case, which for people who who, who don't recall was Jerry Adams's brother was imprisoned for raping his daughter over a period of years, beginning when she was four. Jerry Adams knew about this, had been told about it years previously, uh, but he only came to trial in 2013. But at this time, McGuinness believed that it was causing Sinn Féin such damage 
that he wanted, he wanted Jerry, Jerry Adams to step down. Mm-hmm. T- tell us. Yeah, so um, the Anya Adams case was a horrific um, time, both for Sinn Féin and obviously for, for Anya Adams, but it, it emerged that Jerry Adams had been told by Anya and her mother when she was a lot younger that Liam Adams... Years previously. Years previously that Liam Adams had been raping Anya since she was a child. Then Jerry's um, account of it um, was that he met with them. Anya's account, of course, very much differed from Jerry's account. But the long and short of it is very little was done until Anya was a grown woman and then she eventually went to um, the police. I believe it was the PSNI by that stage. It was the RUC and the first time she went. She dropped um, the charges initially because she said that the RUC were more interested in who her uncle was than the fact that her father was raping her, and that is something I would absolutely believe. And when it came out, it did very much appear that Jerry had known about this for a long time, but very much saw it as an internal family matter. He's talked about it even to you recently. It was a traumatic time for his family. But yeah, she said what that I he have, confirmed this yesterday. What I have um, in the book is every single instance in which he was pictured with his brother Liam after he knew about all the allegations. And then when Jerry Adams wrote his first book about his life, he sent a free copy of it to Anya. And in the acknowledgements, he thanked all of his family and wrote, especially Liam, and sent a free copy to Anya Adams. Do you think he did that consciously? No, no I don't. But... This is so. This in itself was causing Martin McGuinness a lot of internal strife. Uh, as I said, Martin McGuinness is a very different person at the start of my book and at the end of my book, and was very religious, very Catholic, very moral in his own way. And he was getting very, very concerned about uh, the press that Sinn Féin were getting, that they were being slaughtered over the Anya Adams case. And what I find so strange is within you know the Republicans I spoke to, there is so much excuse an excusal of murder and mayhem, but when it came to sex abuse, that that's when they were going to draw the line. And the Anya Adams thing was a big, big issue in Sinn Féin, and eventually Martin wanted Jerry Adams to stand down because he did not think that the party could or should weather it. And internally, staff were very, very upset because Jerry didn't see it as a Jerry problem. Jerry made it a Sinn Féin problem. And you detail in the book about how there was meetings carried on uh, with, at, at leadership level within the party to figure out how to respond to this. And there mm-hmm. was a spreadsheet drawn up of all the things Somebody that had been wrote, said. Made, at someone the made a spreadsheet and where they listed every single allegation Anya Adams had made and then in a different column, all the press statements so they could keep an eye on everything they had said regarding Anya Adams. A child victim of sex abuse was reduced to a column in a spreadsheet. Um, and a lot of staff were very upset about that. Martin McGuinness was very upset about that. And eventually, yes, he wanted Mark, uh, Jerry to stand aside. And I was quite interested to see in the Irish Times, Jerry didn't overtly deny it, he said. Oh, no, he, he didn't. So I, I, I put it, um, uh, just to explain to people, I... I Obviously, got a copy of the book before we did all this, and uh, it is the practice of publishers to put out bits and pieces of stories to stimulate interest uh, in the book. And anyway, this was one of the ones that I alighted on, and I put it to Jerry Adams on 
Friday, he came back with a statement that basically confirmed the story in the book. He put it slightly differently. He said that Martin offered, offered to take over if he wished to step aside. But as you describe it in the book, and you have a very vivid description of the, the decisive meeting that took place in Sinn Féin headquarters on Parnell Square, in which Adams arrived in with a bunch of his supporters and basically the routed the, uh, the suggestion that he should step down. Yeah, and the meeting for me was the most interesting thing because it just shows you that it was only when I spoke to my editor of the book and you're kind of parsing through it and he said, well, you know, that just shows you what happens when you try and go against Jerry Adams. And I was like, I had never thought of that because in the meeting, Martin and another staff member said, listen, like, these are going to have to... Martin was a lot more polite about it than the staff member was, but he said, you know, I think you should stand down until these investigations are over. And Jerry Adams just said, no. And that was it. And it just shows you that some... I believe that there is only one person who's bigger than the Republican movement, and that person's Jerry Adams. Harry, the Sinn Féin treatment, and there's another chapter in the book which details the case of uh, Maria Cahill. Um, it, it, it seems to me that these cases, although they are historical, do have the potential to really politically damage Sinn Féin in the future. Um, absolutely, and Jonathan Dowdall is another, it's, it's in a different context. The Maria Cahill chapter is also a uh, very powerful uh, chapter. And I, I think what it shows is an organization uh, that is obsessed with control, that's run along uh, very regimental and hierarchical lines, which is fine uh, in a particular context. But when you get into the maw of politics and messy human experiences and dysfunctionalism, and situations that are uh, happening so quickly that you can't really have control of them, Sinn Féin foundered. And one of the valuable things in the book that I thought was that from the start, Aoife talks about Sinn Féin going into the assembly for the first time after the Good Friday Agreement. And whatever competence they had as negotiators, whatever competence they had in terms of, you know, a, an organisation that was very much in control uh, of its agenda, of its message, when they encountered real-life problems, all these incompetencies and messy situations arose which they weren't able to deal with. Well, it's because they weren't politicians and I don't think they ever really pretended to be in terms of, like, they stood for election, but they had abstentionist policy, so I had quite a few funny stories about how, like, when they got in the and no one, only a couple of them knew how to use a computer. Yeah. Because, like, a lot of them had just been in prison, like, and <laughs> didn't have much formal education, so everything was... That, for me, is really the only funny things in the book, is yeah. them trying to run a press office and being like, never had written a press release in their life, didn't know why anything worked. There's another one somebody told me when they came in the Starmouth, they had a nightmare trying to find light switches. Yeah, yeah and there was, a, there was a lot of that. But on a more serious note, when they came to like really big problems, uh, such as sexual abuse, uh, such as rape, uh, such as, as the failure of uh, republicanism uh, to deal uh, with their own members who had been accused, uh, and more than accused, who had actually been convicted uh, of rape, they were completely uh, unable uh, to do it and acted in a way that was inappropriate, in a way that was insensitive, and compounded the sense of justice uh, that the victims uh, had. And they, you know, it, it, it's historical, 
but people still remember the Maria Cahill thing, and Maria Cahill is still there, and Maria Cahill became a very powerful voice in terms of standing up for the integrity of a victim, in terms of, of having their story held and making sure that justice was done. I think the IRA at one stage offered to, to meet out some violent um, they, uh, they retribution to her, and that's not what she wanted. But they didn't understand that, that, that that's not what she wanted at the time. And it goes through to the vetting of Jonathan Dowdall, which is another revelation. It's a real revelation in the book, I thought. Yeah, yeah. A chapter, which shows that when they come against these very difficult real-life situations, the party has on occasion foundered and acted in a way that was contrary to what most people would accept as right and just. Just, just release to us about the, the Jonathan Dowdall, which I guess people will recall yeah, the, so the outcome of it, but... Yeah. So Sinn Féin are well known, you know, for their, their vetting procedures and when you want to stand for election or they're thinking about you standing for election, they will ask around your local area, you know, what's this girl like, what's this fellow like? And they went to the inner city, um, I believe Jonathan Dowdall is originally from Ballybuck, and they went down to the inner city and phoned someone from the Aunt Carla, phoned someone that I know and said, what's the crack with this fellow Jonathan Dowdall? Um, we're thinking about making him a local rep. Uh, we have you of running them in Dublin City Council elections. And the fellow said, leave it with me and I'll ask around. And he said, the first person that he phoned said, he actually burst out laughing when he heard Jonathan Doyle's name. And he said, absolutely not. He said, do not have this fella anywhere near East. It's not a good idea. He's a loose cannon. He's unpredictable. He doesn't, as far as I know, have any Republican credentials or any interest in politics. He's not for you. And we know how the rest of that shook out, but they are someone from the Art Corlea was informed well before he was chosen that he might not be of great character. And so we know how the rest of it transpired. He becomes a Sinn Féin candidate, becomes a Sinn Féin councillor, and then he waterboarded someone. And he, then he waterboards somebody, and and then he's and then he's the witness. In a the biggest gangland trial in the history of the country. So, you know, I mean, it's quite the trajectory. It's quite really, funny when you, you know. about it. Like, like. Uh, but from the, the, the account you give of that in the I book... Know, I'm sorry, I'm not telling these stories very well, but I wrote this book so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what it contradicts, this is one of the interesting yeah. points for me, is the account you give in the book directly contradicts what Mary Lou MacDonald said about him yeah. after the trial, which was, if we had any inclination that this fellow was in any way dodgy, he wouldn't have been within an yeah. assertion and, and we can say that I don't know if Mary, Mary Lou says she doesn't know and we have to take her at her word because we don't know. But like she says she doesn't, so she doesn't. But I know from what the person told me that it was someone from the Arcorda had asked him to check him out and he was told not to have him anywhere. Mm. And... You know, the campaign, the council elections that year, Jonathan Doyle's campaign was in itself a sign that this was a very chaotic person and maybe he wouldn't be the best candidate, yeah, but he got elected anyway. There was a specific instance where, uh, and it happened during the vetting process, or, or before he actually ran for election, when a relative, relative of his, his house was sprayed with bullets. Isn't yeah, that right? Yeah, so a Sinn Féin um, staff member actually... Stop. Well, a question, Jonathan Doyle, and said, "I heard you shot up your uncle's house," and and um, so they had already known that there was allegations that Jonathan Doyle had 
got a gun and shot up his uncle's house. Jansen Dowdle obviously denied that he had anything to do with it and then he went on to be picked as a candidate and then ran and then became a I mean, it's the sort of thing that normal candidate vetting would be expected to unearth, really. You Have know? you ever are, shot up a relative? Yeah, are your taxes box. in order? Who Have you ever waterboarded anyone? Who hasn't had a bad Christmas with an auntie and yeah. just thought, do you know what? Fucker. <laughs> Uh, I, I do want to dip into the audience and, um, uh, and get some questions in a minute, but I, I'm going to give the lads just a second to sort out a mic if they can uh, do that. But um, I, I want to talk about the future a little bit uh, as well, and, but also kind of get you to reflect personally a bit on kind of how your view of Sinn Féin has been affected by the experience writing the book, what you think everybody should know or not know about them as we approach a a general election in which they will be competing to lead the government. Well, put it this way, right? I'm 32. I don't own a house. Barely anyone I know or hang around with owns a house. Many of us don't think we'll ever own a house. And when it comes down to that, there is no one sitting in this room who looks at the housing crisis and goes... Mm, I was going to vote for Sinn Féin, but they seem a bit funny about internal relations, so I probably won't give them a vote. I think we're at this stage now where people just want people to build houses. And I think Owen O'Brien is a very believable candidate. He is a very smart man. And if anyone, like you, people who absolutely hate Sinn Féin would say Owen's the man to do it. I think a lot of people aren't voting for Sinn Féin, they're voting for Owen O'Brien. But for me, my... I try not to like, I try not to like let my personal feelings. I was very, very, it sounds very corny to say I was very hurt, but the long story short was the first person I told about the book was Mary Lou MacDonald. And then a year later, like six, eight months later, Mary Lou MacDonald went on News Talk and Gavin Riley asked her, Have, has Aoife Murray approached you for an interview? And Mary Lou said, not to, my, not to the best of my knowledge. And I just thought... That was a lie though, wasn't it? I don't know if we're allowed to say that. It's an untruth, Pat. That's the same thing as a yeah. lie, Eva. And I was very like, that's not true. And I really believe, you know, that's not true. Because at another point, I stopped her in Leinster House and I was giving off about one of her breast officers. I was saying, he's doing my head and I'm doing his head and can I please get an answer either way? And she said, I know, I know what he's like. I know what he's like. We'll get you an answer. Never did. And then went on the radio and said that I never asked for it in the first place. So... Stuff like that obviously really pissed me off because, like, if she like if she wants to act like that, that's fine. But that to me made me look very stupid and bad at writing books because if the notion was that I hadn't even approached the leader of the party to write a book about that party, that makes me look like an idiot. So I think I don't think there's anything now. And when I was writing the book, I remember people being like, "Oh, like, is there going to be big revelations and is this going to damage Sinn Fein?" But like. Think about the worst thing you've ever heard about Jerry Adams, right? I'm not going to tell you anything worse than that. And I think a lot of people now have made their peace with the fact of who Sinn Féin is, who Sinn Féin was, and a lot of people have made their peace. They're not the same party that they were. They might have fragments of the party that they were, but when it comes to things like housing and health and abortion and equal marriage, they have been on the right side 
of history and they have made a concerted effort and the biggest effort they have ever made to get other, other people to vote for them was getting rid of Jerry Adams and installing Mary Lou MacDonald. The Long Game by Aoife Moore is published by Sandy Cove. That is it from today's podcast. Thanks to Aoife, to Pat and to Harry and to Nisha Nunn at Mindfield for facilitating that conversation and to our producer Declan Conlon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed, but until then, goodbye and have a lovely weekend.